0: Turn to Matthew 6, if you will. Thank you, choir. It's glad to get them healed up from the Christmas season and get you back. We appreciate it. These songs are supposed to lose their impact. They're not current. The only way you can stay relevant is to keep preaching things eternal. It's the same with music. It's truth that we want to sing about. Sing about truth. All right. We pick up. We're still in our Lord. We're just, I read from chapter 6, 1, but we'll just begin at verse 7 and pick up from where we left off last week. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Our first concern in prayer is the worship, adoration, praise of God. If you're not interested in that, if you're not really wanting to dress a father, and if you don't want to be hallowing his name, uh, just get up. You don't even have time. Keep on worrying. Keep running around. Keep staying fruitless. Stay fruitless. John 15 says, when you abide, you ask, and when you ask, you abound. The reason many aren't abounding, they're not asking, and they're not asking because they're not abiding. But The first concern of prayer, I would think, would be adoration. Uh, There's a lot of people, that they like God only when they want the car keys. I had um, one of my my grandsons, his his dad was talking to me a while back. He said, boy, you know what? I, I raised Matthew and I did this and that, and I wanted him to be my bud kind of run with me as he grew up. He's about 20 now. And he says, he doesn't want to run with me. He wants the car keys, he wants the car, and he wants some money, but he doesn't want to hang out with me. I know believers that way. God is some uh, heavenly Santa Claus. If you don't give me something, I don't, why should I show up? Because they're in love with the gifts. They're not in love with the giver. It'd be real nice if you get close to God because when you need something, that may help. It sure helped me for my kids to be obedient before they ask for the car keys and 20 bucks to go out. Maybe that's why I got so many hugs that day. I'm just now figuring it out in the pulpit. Okay, so... Wait till I deal with them today about that. Their motive was corrupt. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is heaven. You you notice your priority will be his will. You haven't asked anything for yourself yet. Do you notice that? And many of us, that's the only thing we think prayer is, telling God what you want. Well, so what? Uh... You're not even, this is not the basis. Jesus said, you've got to want the will of God and the reign of God and the rule of God over anything you're to do with. I'm amazed at how much in Christian service the will of God's not the concern. It gives me a buzz. Who's concerned whether it's God's will or not? Let's just keep doing it. Then give us this day our daily bread. And that was praying for the provisions we need Now, I want to pick up uh, the fourth part of this prayer, and we'll spend the remaining time. Next week, I'm going to deal with, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And I find this the most difficult verse. Uh, Does God ever plan for you to be tested? Does God test you? It's the same word, lead us not into temptation. Uh, will all temptations be removed from your life tomorrow? So, I'm wrestling with that verse, exactly what we're to be praying about, because I know so many folks that succumbed yesterday that are succumbing today, and how many of us will succumb tomorrow. You'd think we ought to figure out what that verse means. We'll look at it. And forgive us our debts. Now, visa was not even invented. So he's not talking about visa. They didn't have credit cards. We didn't have credit cards till uh, after the 1900s. Forgive us our debts. And these are relational debts. And the word is obligations. Forgive us of the personal obligations we have not met. Is the idea. As we also, and notice this, have forgiven. Is that present tense or past? By the time you show up to pray this prayer, you will have already forgiven the offending parties. You, when you show up, you've already forgiven. You see that? As we also have already forgiven those who have not paid their relational debts to us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You've got your notes here. Let's take the journey. Uh, When God talks about personal relationships in the Bible, he says in Romans 13, 8, owe no man anything financially. The goal of life is not to be in debt. But the continuing debt of loving one another, that's the debt you never pay off. To love people, to be loving God with all your heart, and loving people are the two greatest commandments. And those are our two greatest sins. We quit loving God, and we quit loving people as we ought. He said in Leviticus 19, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall rebuke him, but you shall not hate him. That is, withhold hold love. So let's take a little journey and uh, see what the Bible says uh, about this. It's interesting in Matthew, a chapter back, notice what he says about when you're praying. Uh, let me pick it up in um, mm. if I could find the verse for you. Uh, verse 23, chapter five. "So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and now remember that your brother has something against you, continue praying about it. Is that what yours says? What uh, Leave your offering. Wait. Leave the place of worship? Lord, I'm involved in worship here. I, I, I brought a sacrifice. He said, being reconciled to your brother is more important than hanging out at the place of worship until and, and you make the effort to make it right if you think he has something against you. Then you go over to chapter 18, and it's, it's a different scenario. Look at 18, verse 15. Can you turn there? Is that going too quick? Same book, chapter 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you. Now, back in chapter 5, you think your brother has something against you, so you go. Here, your brother has sinned against you. Go. Go. And tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Now, uh, it's quite interesting. In both scenarios, guess who takes the initiative to get it right? Whoever. Whoever it is that says, hey, I think he's got something against me. I better go see him and see what I can do to rectify that. Over here in 18, he has sinned against me. Here, I'm not in five where I think he's offended. No, I'm in 18 where he's really done something against me. And in both scenarios, he's saying, go and make it right. Guess what? If we were dealing with two believers, what should happen in this case? They should both run into each other halfway going to each other's house. That, that they can't even pray until they pay attention to a perceived wrong or maybe being misinterpreted, whatever, their first priority is to get to each other, but maybe this one person doesn't even move. He says, if you think they're mad at you, you've got something, you go. If this person has sinned against you, you go. It doesn't matter. The big contest, especially in marriage, who's going to say, I forgive first or I'm sorry first? It's that whole pride contest. Well, I'm not going to, I'm not saying anything until they move. And here we go, here we go. And all the time, our spiritual life is going down because pride keeps us from saying, it doesn't matter who's wrong. It doesn't matter. I use a thing in counseling all the time. It's not who's right, it's what's right. Depersonalized difference. She's right. I'm wrong, I'm right, she's wrong. You know what? I found out if she's wrong and I'm right, we're both still losing. I don't win in marriage unless we both win. How about you? So it says, well, I'm right. Well, yeah, you may be a lonely right. It's real cold in that bed at night by yourself. You're right. If that's your whole goal, I'm right. Well, you're not always going to be right. Believe me. It's what is the right thing to do when one of us have been wrong. Do the what. What's the right thing? And so he says we ought to make it our business to get there and sell it quickly. I'm going to just give you a little preview here of verses that deal with anger. Look at the rather, uh forgiveness. Look, if you will, in Luke chapter 6. That's Matthew, Mark, Luke, turn, and I'm listening for paper. If you don't turn the paper, the ushers will usher you out. That is if you're a member. Uh, He says in verse 35 of Luke 6, love your enemies and do good and lend Oh, man, I, I hate some of these verses. I hope none of my children are here. <laughs> Expecting nothing in return, and that's what they read this verse to me when they borrow, <laughs> and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. Well, I'm already sons of the Most High. I don't think I have to loan you any money. For he's kind to the ungrateful and the evil, be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Where else have you heard a verse like that? See, you don't read your Bible. Matthew's account of it, he said, Be perfect as your father's in heaven. Perfect. And you say, Well, nobody can be perfect. Guess what? Luke tells you what he meant the measure of perfection he's looking at, learn to be as merciful towards people as God has been towards you. It's amazing how unmerciful human beings are to one another. And none of us are going to heaven without mercy. Right? I love having Kevin here. I can hear his amen. The rest of you, I can hear you snoring. Uh, Look at chapter 7. Chapter 7. Verse 36, a sinful woman goes to see Jesus in a Pharisee's house, and the Pharisee does nothing to make Jesus comfortable. He's just ticked that the woman is there, and uh, uh, she's washing the feet of Jesus. She can't leave him alone, and and he's thinking, my lands, if you're a prophet, don't you know who's doing all of this? Uh, You're running with some pretty bad company, if you'll accept worship from this sinful woman. And so, he tells him a a little parable, verse 41. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Okay, from 500 to 50. Now, which of them will love him more, Simon answered. The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss not my mouth, my feet, my feet. This woman, the last thing she was doing was being sensuous. You gave me no kiss. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven Then those who were at table with him begin to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? It points out one of the great tensions we live with. And that is we're called to be holy, to live a blameless life, to live according to God's will. And in the midst of that, we're in danger of being self-righteous that we don't live like other people. It's why church people get accused of being self-righteous, legalistic, and the atmosphere breeds it. If I'm doing the right, and all of a sudden someone's coming in the church has done all this wrong, And all of a sudden, they get the same status of a brother. You know, hey, we accept you. You're in the family. I mean, all these years I've been fleeing temptation. All these years I've been doing it your way, and all of a sudden, we just tell them, you're forgiven. It just, it's like that thief on the cross. He never even had to tithe, and he got to go to heaven. How can you do that, God? I've served you all these years, wrote out a hundred checks, How can you let a thief get into heaven when I'm over here trying to overcome sin, overcome temptation, learning to give, learning to serve? And that guy just said, I believe you're the Son of God. Remember me. When you die, I'll see you in paradise. Or if it's that easy, I'm going to boogie until I'm about ready to die and just say, remember me, Lord. Well, there's a lot of misery while you're boogieing, because sin comes to kill you and destroy you. And the problem church folks have is we want to always remind ourselves we're forgiven people while we're seeing others forgiven. Because guess what happens? If you stay in church a long time, you'll be the person in the service that least loves God. The least. He didn't have to forgive me very much. Just putting up with you one day is a whole lot. Because God knows what's in your heart. He knows what your potential is. He knows what he saved you from, what he... See, and if you didn't do it, the way I feel, I feel I'm the chief sinner in this place, because I know what I would have done had he not messed up my plans by saving me. Do you know what you would have done? If he would have just left me alone, I could have really been mean at 110 pounds. Saved at 14, good night. I didn't have time to tear up the town, but, oh, if you just give me a little bit longer, you have just been amazed how much time I could have served running with all those hoodlums. And so we get over here, well, I, I never did it. You could have. Why didn't you? Well, well uh, you know, I have extra strong character. No, you've got an extra strong God. God kept you from doing so much. So let's not become self-righteous that we didn't do it. And that's hard because you have no patience for people that did things you haven't done because you can't imagine you've done it. And so, what a wonderful thing we are to church. Come to our church where if you've got it together, you'll be accepted. If you've blown it, we're going to judge you the rest of your life. It really invites people to come to our churches. Because without hiding it, that spirit can get in us. And we, get, and we cease to say, come to Jesus. He'll take you like you are. He just won't leave you the way he found you. He'll change you. But he'll accept you anyway. Just, just as I am, I come without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. Can God forgive? And sometimes we as Christians almost forfeit our message because we lay so many rules and perfection on people. Forget it. You're accepted on the death of another, not your own righteousness. Your own righteousness is filthy rags in the sight of God, and you'd be religious to your toenails and fingernails, and you won't get announced towards heaven. You've got to come through Jesus. you got to say, I'm a sinner saved by grace, and all sinners saved by grace said amen. amen. Now, look at Luke 17. Here's one that you're not going to like, But you know, God didn't consult us when he wrote the Bible. It's a solo project. He just had these men write it. They didn't invent these doctrines. Uh, He said, don't offend anyone. And uh, in verse 3, he said, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. I don't mind that. Do you? But you'd be amazed at how many people don't rebuke a person. They just stuff, especially in a marriage, just stuff, stuff. He said he'll rebuke him, and that's exactly what Leviticus said. Watch that. What's, What's being said? When you're sinned against, don't say, I'll bear it in Jesus' name. What he said, it'd be better to say, you know what you just did, offended me, and you were wrong about that, than to stuff it. And when you've done the rebuke, you've loved them, because when you do the rebuke, you're refusing to hate them. You're doing something to let them know that they hurt you, that you may build the relationship. Isn't that? And we think the rebuke is hate. The rebuke is not hate. Verbally express what they did and how it affected you. You have that right. And that's hard for some people. My wife had to learn it after 30 years of living with me because she was a wonderful, godly woman that would bear it and grew up around an alcoholic home where you stuffed your emotional hurt, and she didn't know she could share it with me and not be a godly, submissive woman. I got a new wife when she started talking up to me. I got a liberated wife, and I started hearing a lot of stuff I didn't want to hear that I needed to hear. You women, don't go silent. You'll get bitter if you get silent. Tell them the truth in love. Don't let your husband be a mind reader. Just tell him how it came across. Don't overdo it, but tell him some time. Don't do it when he wants to make love. Settle it some other time. (laughs) If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, okay, I'm gonna see if you're reading this. Forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a lifetime, A day? See, the rabbis said you only had to forgive three times a day. So here we've upped it to seven times. And turns to you seven times saying, I repent. You must forgive him. Guess what? The disciple says, You're going to have to give me more faith. I can't forgive seven times in one day. Then he's going to really blow them away when he says, What about seven times 70? 490 times the same offense in one day. In other words, he was just using infinity. You forgive as long as they need it. You don't ever say this, do you? If you ever do that, it's over. You would never say that to your husband or your wife. You know, I've shared before my wife, for some reason, she's always afraid I guess, just couldn't stand the idea of somebody hitting her or whatever. And and in our early marriage, there were times she'd say, and you better never hit me. I said, I've never been tempted until now. (laughs) Why did you say, I better never hit you? Because now if I don't hit you, I'm under a threat. You put me under a threat. Like, the reason you don't hit me is because you know I told you off and you better straight. Wait, I'm When did I ever want to hit you? I married you to love you, not hit you. I know where the gym is. Get a body bag. But she just put that, and oh, I never my life. Why was I tempted? As soon as she put a a, a prohibition, I went, boom. Because it's like the prohibition was the thing holding me in place. Honey, I don't need you to tell me not to do it, to not do it. I would be out of my head to want to do that to you. But the very imperative, and so we get to telling these people, we put them, don't ever do that again. You better not do it. By the way, you better never think about doing that. Cut it out. You don't want to be tempted in that area. And so he says, forgive them. And then he goes down, and he says that forgiveness ought to be a way of life. And what I didn't show you was in Matthew 18, and there will, that'd be enough in the Gospels, that Matthew 18, he told the story of a man forgiven an infinite amount of money, and he gets to go free, and the man goes out, and he has a fellow worker that owes him about three months' worth of wages. A denarius was of one day's pay. It was three, 90 days' worth of pay. N- not impossible to pay back, and he wouldn't forgive him. And it was this picture again. We must always realize we're forgiven people. I don't know how long you've been a Christian, but you want to ask God, don't ever let me get over the fact that I'm a forgiven person. I may have not done the nasty nine or might not have done this or done that, but I am a forgiven person. I'm going to heaven by grace. I'm going because I've been forgiven. I thank God for what I haven't done, but I thank God he's forgiven me for what I have done. And every day, God is forgiving you of something. Every day. Don't most of you keep God pretty well exercised in forgiveness? It's daily, daily. I mean, how many times in the, how long did it take you to break some of your worst habits when you became a believer? Lord, help me not to do it again, not do it again. And, man, it goes on for life. It's just just the way it is. Uh, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. But notice what he says in Ephesians 4, talking about forgiveness. Ephesians 4, that's in the New Testament. I don't hear paper. Go he, I, this is a Bible church. I, I want you to look at, uh, blame me for the preaching, but blame God for the word. Look at 430. He tells them in this context not to be using bad language, not to be sinning, not to go to bed angry, don't have all that going. Then he summarizes it by verse 30. And stop grieving the spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption now look in your notes, and I start taking this apart, okay? You see it in your notes? We're going to just I'll give you the Greek meanings of these different words. And he says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another. This is the positive. He's getting rid of the negative. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another just as they deserve. Who's the no's? How many no's? You're the only ones who are looking at the text. How's the text go? You mean you don't forgive them because they merit it? Boy, you're weak. Can't you say a uniform no? This is antiphonal preaching. You're supposed to talk back to me. I don't think you're awake. I cannot, I'm not to forgive you because you deserve to be forgiven. You rascal, you were wrong to do me that way. I don't have to cough up, oh, I'm just so sorry and I just feel so loving. No, it's only because God has treated me such a way that I'm forgiving you, but you are guilty. You were wrong. I don't have to lessen what you did. It's okay. Let's just forget about it. No, I'm not going to forget. I will remember probably as long as I live that you did me wrong. There's no place that I have to forget it. I wish I could. But I'm not going to use it against you. I've released it. I've let it go. So the negative side, he says, get rid of some things, bitterness. And look at what a Greek lexicon says. It was a figurative term denoting that fretted and irritable state of mind that keeps a man in perpetual animosity, that inclines him to harsh, should not be an either and uncharitable opinions of men and things, that makes him sour, crabby, and repulsive in his general demeanor, That brings a scowl over his face and infuses venom in the words of his tongue. He just, by the time you meet them, they're a churning pot of grievances and things they've not let go. And um, some of the hardest people I've ever seen to forgive are those who are dead. Or yourself. Women who've had abortions that say, I can't forgive myself. Wait, wait, if God can, why can't you? To say you've ever done a sin that God can't forgive is pride, as though you have a sin greater than the cross. Is there any sin that Calvary cannot cover? Now, you may still have to go to penitentiary. We may still have to do a death penalty. We don't practice that in this country hardly, only in Huntsville, Texas. You may not get away from societal debt paying back, but before God, you can be forgiven. But I must say, one of the most dangerous things we get, especially a lot of times when people come to us from other churches, especially when you start a work. Ted Montoya was sharing this with me recently. You get a lot of bitter people. Why did you leave the last church? Well, I didn't like the way things were going. Well, you don't like the way they're going here. Maybe the problem's with you. I used to, when I first started, everybody that first come to the church in my early days, now remember, I'm in my 40th year, so I'm not easily impressed. I've seen them come. I've seen them go. And the will of God for me is stay put. Not waiting on the latest poll. And um, people that would just never get well always had to have something to bicker about. Telling me how to do this, how to do that. The church ought to do this. The church was just fine before you got here. Do you want to ruin a good church... A perfect church is you join it. Because we're the community of the forgiven. And I watch some people, every time I see them, they're looking for another church. It's like some folks are always looking for a better wife. The problem in the better wife is for you to become a better man. Once you get your act and your attitude straightened out, That poor woman would have to be bionic to meet up to your expectations. And there's not too many uh, Clark Kent women around. Superwoman died a long time ago. And super churches died. If you can't stand to be among the forgiven, the forbearing, the failing, uh, you need to go start your own church. But that'll ruin it. That'll ruin it. Jesus knows how to start churches, and he starts them with saved sinners. And sinners that need forgiveness constantly. If you can't stand that, probably you're not saved. Because if you were forgiven, you'd welcome forgiving people. The forgiven love to forgive. If you can't forgive, you're bitter. No need of having a prayer life. I guarantee you you don't have one. Because it's hard to pray effectually by saying, God, please kill the people that have hurt me. It just doesn't seem to ring heaven's doors. Bitterness. And you have to do that. Did you know what? It's one of the constant battles of pastors and those who work with all kinds of people for us not to be bitter. I've been at times where I do not know that I was bitter, but I wanted to. I was angry. And it's hard to preach God when you're angry at the congregation. Who do I get angry at? Who's the most likely people to get angry with? You. Hell's angels don't bother me. It's you. People in the church, this, that, oh, we don't do, hey, ooh, hey, uh, hey. <laughs> if I get bitter, it's over. So if I lose my prayer life, I'll lose my pulpit life. If you lose the private place, you'll lose the public place. Because God's never fool. So you've got to watch this green-eyed monster of bitterness that you won't let a grievance go, or he did this and I'll never forgive him for it, or she did that, and oh, life is full of hurts. And, uh, and when I say about dead people, I, I met a woman in the aisle when we were at the theater years ago, and she came up after a message, and she was crying and, and really uh, emotionally wrought, and I, I said, wow, wow, uh, can I help you? She said, I can't forgive him, I can't forgive him. And I said, what, what, what is it? Who is it? Can I help reconcile? I can't forgive him. And I said, what is it? What is it? She said, I can't forgive my dad. I said, you got to get to him. you got to forgive him. She said, he's been dead for seven years. But she couldn't let it go. She hated her dad in her heart today for what he did to her in her childhood. Horrendous hurt. But it was killing her in the present killing her in the present, or that woman or that man that's done something. I think people who've lived through painful divorce, the abortion situation. Sometimes uh, I'm amazed at how many crazy things you can do before you're 21 that you can never undo. Got children born out here. You got this. You got all the sins you can do before you're 21. And maybe mark you for the rest of your life. And you're saying, how can I ever get above it? Got to forgive yourself like God forgives you. You got to forgive others. And he said, get rid of wrath, which is explosive anger. And then the other word for anger is settle. Just, you're always angry. You know, those are the hard ones for me to figure out. I tend to explosive anger. Uh, it's these folks that are mad all the time that bother you. I mean, you don't have to do anything. They're, they just woke up mad, and they're going to go to bed mad. My dad said my mother was the most even-tempered woman he knew. She got up mad went to bed mad, very even-tempered. Uh, she wasn't that bad, but he loved to tell her that. Clamor, outcry, shouting, cry of strife, a lot of uh, yelling home. A yelling relationship, slander, evil speaking, uh, evil, bad heartedness. Uh, look at uh, First Peter. That's interesting. Isn't the Christian life the hardest at home? Do you find it that way? I find the hardest place to really be a Christian is in my home. Uh, I must be a wreck. I hear no amen. Well, you can't. Your wife's with you. That's Okay. You know, you know, you can act super spiritual up here and have a nasty. but you know what, especially when you're raising kids, they see you in your underwear, they see how you treat your uh, wife. Yeah, you, know, you can't fake it too good at home. It's real hard. Christianity kind of wears off if you don't have the real thing. And uh, I, this verse haunts me in verse 7. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Well, what is that? Good night. Who can figure out how God made a woman? You get that way. Well, he expects you to understand her, so I'd recommend you read some books about her. Uh, She's not a heavyweight sumo wrestler. She she has a different constitution than you. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. You say, yes, I can agree with that. Wait. The weaker is probably she's made of china, and you're just a mug cup. She's not weaker as a whole, and you know that. Because if she's weaker, why is she making your life a wreck? They got strengths you don't realize until they use it on you. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered, I think this is where many a prayer life has died. Couples that never settle their differences. Uh, they, they're not relating rightly to each other. Now, he addresses this to the husband, but it would apply to the, the wife is being told to be a submissive follower in verse 3, three one through 6. Here, though, it goes to the husband and says, by the way, God doesn't want to hear a husband talk to him that isn't good to his wife. Now, that eliminates a lot of you guys from having a prayer life. Because if you're not good to the weaker, there's something about God. That's the terrible thing about racism and about class. Here I get me to go to India in February, and I'm going to have to deal with the caste system. Uh, I'm going to be among a higher caste at this meeting because it will be Sikhs as a whole that have come to Christ But uh, the untouchables is where most of Christianity has taken hold in India, and uh, God is a God will always judge your character by how you treat the weakest person in the room. Your character is no better than how you treat the weakest person there. I don't care if it's color. I don't care if it's economics. I don't care if it's male, female. If it's, if it's eight men and there's one woman there, I'll look at men see how we treat the one woman. If it's eight whites and one black, the measure of our maturity is how we treat the black man, and vice versa. If it's all blacks and I'm the only white man, the character comes out, how am I treated when I'm the minority? It's the terrible sin of pr- pride and prejudice. We better make the weakest person feel welcome, significant. That's the Jesus method. And when you're living with a woman who's weaker, God says, men, I don't expect you to use that against her. I expect you to use it as an opportunity for ministry. If you use it against her, I don't want you to talk to me in prayer. And you need my help more than you need her. And I'll cut you off from me if you hurt her. I always tell submissive women, don't worry, do it God's way, and he'll fight your battles. And he can handle your husband. He knows how to give him a coronary he can't get over. He knows how to kill in your sleep. He's God. Did you hear me? I said, he's God. Your breath is in his hands. My brother David, his grandson, went home here the other night on a Tuesday night. By 11 o'clock the next morning, a 23-year-old boy breathes no more. We do his funeral Thursday. 23 years of age, my brother's grandson dies. Just a young man. We don't know why he died, but he died. So, see, I need the blessing of God more than I need to not forgive you, and he said, in prayer, make prayer the daily checkup list in your heart. Is there any relationship I'm neglecting, whether it's domestic, my home, uh, children? Uh, just start the circle. Start with your family. Work out to the maybe uh, my associates uh, who I work with. As much as possible, as much as possible, Strive to live at peace with all men. And so, forgiveness is a big part of our prayer life. You may say, I don't want to forgive, and I'm told to forgive. By the time I show up to pray, I'm, I'm expected by God to have already forgiven. And if you haven't, you just, you got an elephant on the air hose. You got to get him off. You're starving yourself of the oxygen you need for the Christian life. It's not worth it. That divorce forgiver. Forgiving, let it go. If you'd known better, you would have done b- different. No matter, don't worry about the guilty, the not guilty. Just forgive. You, you, you suffered enough pain, a- enough heartbreak. Let it go. Just, just let Calvary take care of it. Would that be enough? Calvary. And then get that load off of you, because when you come to God in prayer, You don't want to be dragging a bunch of old tin cans of problems that says, Lord, I can't let it go. Why can't you? Just leave it at his feet. He can handle your enemies as well as your friends. Put them in God's hands. They hate you. Don't hate them back. Just I'll pray for those who despitefully use me. Oh, forgiveness. I've seen it ruin more. Churches, marriages, sweet people that have become bitter over some 10-bit little issue that has poisoned their soul and lost a wonderful home over some little grievance that just kept growing and became a mountain. Listen to me. We're the forgiven, and the way of life we've been called to is different than the ancient Near East. They grew up on blood revenge, and it was a shame culture. America is not a shame culture. Japan is, ancient Near East. Some cultures, even uh, Iran, Iraq, if you make me lose face in front of other people, the only solution is blood revenge. We don't have a shame culture because we've lost our sense of shame. We do anything, say, you could cuss a teacher out in a Richmond school district and find no reprimand for it because the teacher can't be protected. But in the ancient Near East, I get to kill you if you miss. That's why when Jesus says, an eye for an eye, that was revolutionary because they had grown up on a culture, you do something to me, I'm going to do more to you. And when Jesus said, don't inflict any more injury than you receive, that was restraint. It was totally foreign to ancient Near East. We are not to be vindictive people because we'd rather have a heavenly Father who hears us meet all the deepest needs of our life than to get even with anybody. We'll let God have the vengeance. We'll let God settle the scores. Our biggest battle is to forgive as we've been forgiven so we can keep talking to God. Amen.